we're at a major turning point, and I don't want to—I don't want us to lose the significance of it. So, I want to underscore some of the things that we did last night. Um, those of you who've been doing the literature—I don't know what to call this program. I don't like the word class, but this work that we've done together. You know that one of the most important terms in literature is this notion of the peripatia. Yeah. Um, the pair, sorry, a turn. I really want to underscore this tonight because. Um, we've just gone through a major one, and I'm afraid that some of the significance will be lost, and I, I don't want that to happen. You know that according to Aristotle, that all great tragedy um, moves from a problem, a complication, a climax, a denouement, a resolution. That's an act. Tra tragedy in our world y usually means something bad. That isn't classically what tragedy is. When I hear a journalist use that word, my stomach turns because it reinforces the notion in all of us that if something bad happens, it's tragic. That is what tragedy means, not in literature. And I think philosophically. According to Aristotle, um, all drama, good drama, tragedy, um, imitated an action. The plot, this, 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 you know, whatever happened, imitated an action. That's his definition. So the plot is an imitation of an action, something that's invisible. We can't see it. It's a, what he would call a change of spirit. Um, so we focus on the surface. We say in the Iliad, this happened, this happened, this happened, this happened. Or in the Divine Comedy, Dante tries to climb a mountain, right? We look at all the episodes. They constitute the work's plot. And I'm sure if I asked most of you, you could plot out the, per the Inferno and Purgatory pretty well right now. In a brief summary, you could say this is what happens. But Aristotle means by action, the plot imitates an action, that which is invisible. So the way we know invisible things is through the visible. If you, if you read the Iliad, you know that Achilles undergoes this amazing change. If you read the Odyssey, you know that Odysseus undergoes this change. Things happen. Um, the, the terms that are really central to Aristotle are the peripatia, the anagnorsis, and the catharsis. And anagnorsis means a recognition. Somebody sees something. Achilles, Odysseus, Lear, Oedipus, it just doesn't matter. All of us. Um, at that moment of recognition, the action turns. And we know that from our ordinary lives. We go on, um, and I, particularly with our children, you know, but, but even with even our own lives, um, we go on thinking everything's okay, and suddenly we learn that um, our kid's doing drugs, or Aunt May ran off with a lover. You know, whatever it is, um, things happen, and you, they, they sometimes affect us with shock. We're not prepared for them because we think everything's okay. The, so the peripatia, in one sense, represents this kind of action. We go along in life thinking everything's okay, and it's as if the rug is pulled out, and suddenly we realize there was a lot going on that we didn't see. That's why every major work that we've read starts 
this is the epic term, starts in medius race, in the midst of things. Doesn't mean the arithmetic middle, it means in the middle of a crisis. So we can go on in our lives and then get the news that our son or daughter did something and suddenly we realize things were not as good as they seemed, that there's something going on. And we, we have to begin to look at things more carefully, more deeply, and sometimes painfully, because <coughs> we have to see things that we weren't prepared to see. I've been saying from the beginning that one of the great values of literature is its prophetic quality. It helps us to see things ordinarily we don't want to see. So all of this is um, review, okay? The peripeteas really important in Dante. There are two major peripeteas. The first one takes place in the shift from the Inferno to, pur to the Purgatorio, right? Um, we know in the scene involving Beatrice and Dante that Dante was in danger of being damned. So we know as we read the Inferno, that's where he would have been if Mary had not gone to Lucia, she'd not gone to Beatrice, and Beatrice to that that's where he would have been. Um, and we learned from Beatrice that it was really important that he learned to see hell so he knew what he was facing. And I'm a trusting that all of us see that's for us, that there's a danger here. What we saw in the shift from the Inferno to the Purgatorio is a world in which people got what they wanted. It's a world of justice, they're held under it. They didn't want any more, that's what they've got. In the shift from the Inferno to the Purgatorio, we see people who are still in sin, but who wanted mercy, who, who wanted to change their lives, and who took on the struggles to do that. That's all it is. Okay? But it's radical, because we can see people who, I mean, you can't read a, a scene in the, in the Inferno without seeing. These people think they see things, they still can use their reason, and they don't even see that they don't know. They're blind. And we learned from Dante that one of the reasons he wanted to go up to Purgatorio, he says this himself, to cure my own blindness. To help him to see so he could begin to make the efforts to change his life. Okay? So the, the shift from the Inferno to the Purgatorio is a shift from um, a condition of sin, a turn from God, um, a wanting to have one's way to make the world this way, a certain way, whatever it was for anybody there, because remember, that's what they've chosen, that's what they've got. Whatever they were doing in life, it just continues. They're stuck in it. Time doesn't change. That's their action. When we go into the Purgatorio, people are learning to see, and we know from what we've done, that at each step, they're learning, they're recovering a wholeness they once had. Level by level, they're learning to see things differently. And as they see things differently, their hearts open, um, they learn to love better, they become better. And we know that the end result of it is a purification. So it's God working to help purify souls, to cleanse them, to prepare them for heaven. So there was one major peripeteia there, the shift from the inferno to the purgatory. Now we just um, encountered another one. I want to underscore it because to me it's, you can, because there's such continuity. Hell, pe and people in hell are stuck. When you go up purgatory, we're encountering people in motion. They're going someplace. And even in the Paradiso, we're encountering a, an action moving forward. People are not stuck. Dante's moving up to heaven and he's learning. There's a progression taking place. 
So it seems like there's this continuity and we can overlook something that is, to me, amazing. So I want to just take a minute once again to go back to that peripatia, the shift from the Purgatorio to the Paradiso, okay? Do the people know they're in hell? Or does it make any difference? It's really inter that's a good question. It's really interesting. It seems to me some people do. I'm thinking of um, who is it, Caiaphas, or who is the one? Boy, my memory. God, Caiaphas, the one who was. There were two figures in two. I mean, besides Vanny Fucci, who's one of the most repulsive figures that I know. When he thumbs his nose at God, but there are two figures. One of them lying prostrate, boasting that he he. Um, he defied Zeus in that war against the giants, and he would defy God. So you get the sense that some of them, in spite, defy God knowing the consequences. But there's a sense in which, even if they don't know it, or they do know it, there's a sense in which they don't know the full implications of what they're doing. Remember, the rule of the Inferno is for people who've lost the good of the intellect. Doesn't Francesca... Hmm? Don't Francesca... And Oh, no. Yeah, in some measure, yeah, but but I hope you'll see that there's, I mean, usually when we think about knowing, boy, that's, I want to be really clear here. When we think about knowing, it requires a distance from the thing known. You know, so if they knew they were in hell, you'd think you can't know it and not want to get out. But that's not the case, even with Francisco and Paola. <coughs> They're still blaming God if, if the king of the universe were friendly to us. So there's a kind of knowing, but if you look at it, it's so blinded, so partial, so disordered, that for all practical purposes, you, you can say, it's not, a kind, it's not a knowing truly. They don't know that they don't know. Whatever they do know, it's not enough for them to see, I don't want to be here. Um, because we've talked about this, remember, I, I love that scene. It's one to me. It's you know that for me, it's one of the most frightening of the um, Inferno, um, with a soul running off, and he's described as if he's winning the race, and he's got this flag. I mean, I can picture. It just scares me. You can you can picture yourself thinking I'm winning in life. You know, if you're very competitive and you want to win, and you're leading the pack. This guy's going on with no sense of irony. And the beauty of that passage for me is it perfectly describes hell. You're just continuing to do what you wanted most in life. That's what you've chosen. That's where you are. You've got to do, you don't even know eternally. You're just there. It's a um, scary image for me. Okay, the importance of the peripatia. There were, there's a couple of things that I, I just want to underscore tonight. The first is, we talked about the importance of um, Dante seeing Beatrice and shaking when he sees her and turning to Virgil. Remember? Um, let's, let's just take a look at a couple of these lines just um, to relive them, okay? Page 342. I'm going to do this just quickly. I'm going to go through a couple of passages here just to remind you. 342 at the bottom. Dante, I do not leave my body green or right below on earth. I have it with me here. It is real flesh, complete with blood and bones. I climb to cure my blindness. You remember the, the, the mode of knowing in purgatory. Think about the reality of this. 
for, for anybody who thinks about these things, I mean, Suzanne, I've already told you the story. When Suzanne hears the prayer of priests when they go, or or when the the parishioners respond in prayers and pray for the poor holy souls in purgatory, and her response is, "We should change that." You know, I hope we all get to purgatory. That they're not poor. It's impossible to think about purgatory for me, certainly reading Dante, without thinking that they're laboring, they're struggling, they're taking on burdens, they're suffering, and they're glad. Everything they do is in wonder. There's not a level that Dante ascends in which he and the souls present don't experience a wonder. I didn't go through to mark them, but how can he not? Every, every level presents him with a situation that shows the people live in wonder. If you're moving towards God and lights are going on, how can you... Wonder will be a constant. So the whole attitude has changed. They're not, they're not whining. That's for the souls down in pre-purgatory. Yeah? They're not whining. They're not complaining. They're, they're being glad because they know where they're going. Um, so, um, Dante Curie is blindness. Then on page 350, remember Dante and Virgil have spent the night on the, the stairs leading from the ledge of lustful to the earthly paradise. Dante had the dream of Leon and uh, Rachel, the contemplative and acclimatic life. Um, because it's an image of the combination of and the fulfillment of the active and contemplative life for us, for every human soul. They get, the, the sun rises, they come out into the earthly paradise, and the descriptions are beautiful. I wish we had time to go into The air is aromatic, aromatic. the ground, the breezes, the, there's a beauty everywhere. You can feel Eden. Way Dante's described it. You now have seen my son, the temporal and the eternal fire. You've reached the place where my discernment has now reached its end. I led you here with skill and intellect. From here on, let your pleasure be your guide. Uh, <clears throat> um, expect no words or signs from me. Now is your will upright, wholesome, and free, and not to heed its pleasure would be wrong. I crown and mitre you, Lord of yourself. So we're to understand, Dante, remember all the P's have been wiped off. Dante has been purified. He's reached a condition of perfection, at least in some ways we think. But the point I want to make here is Virgil was his guide. Um, Dante would not have reached this point without him. He's everything that's good about the human intellect. Everything that's good in its natural form. So... I don't think we can say enough good about Virgil. Um, when Beatrice comes, Dante sees her and his knees shake on page 365. Remember, um, he, he's present with Virgil and Stasis. He sees this chariot approaching. It's drawn by a griffin, the dual image of Christ. Beatrice is in it. She's the Christ bearer. That's what she was in life. That's what she awakened in Dante, a sense of something divine. And here she returns to him. He hasn't seen her since she died. So this has got to be um, a stunning, awesome, shaking moment. And remember, she's at the center. She's a Christ-bearer. 
she's at the center of this procession, it's the beatrician procession, it's the Mass. At the center of it is Christ. Um, all, the, all, the, all the figures from the Old Testament, all the figures from the New Testament, all the figures writing the letters, Paul, Peter, you know, Luke and the Apostles, Acts, they're all there. On one side of the chariot are the three supernatural virtues, faith, hope, charity. On the other side, the four natural virtues, fortitude, prudence, temperance. When is temperance, fortitude, prudence, justice, the four natural virtues. Those are the four virtues every one of us should be striving to perfect. They're the only way we can answer our sins from the natural perspective. We can't answer them fully without Christ, but those are the virtues we're trying to develop. And remember, Mary was the embodiment of every single one of them, every one of them she had. Now, um, it's at this point um, when Dante turns to Virgil, the sooner am I struck by the force of the high piercing virtue <coughs> I had known <coughs> before I quit my boyhood years that I turn to the left with all the confidence that makes a child run to its mother's arm when he's frightened or needs company. This is someone whom Virgil just crowned as a man. I crown and mitre you. You are Lord of yourself. Remember, he's king and priest. Crown and mitre. And he turns to say to Virgil, not one drop of blood is left in my veins that does not throb. I recognize signs of the ancient um, flame. But Virgil was not there. We found ourselves without Virgil's sweet father. Virgil to whom for my salvation I gave up my soul. It's, I think it's just absolutely crucial that we give this all the way we can. My father, my master, um, my mentor, um, sweet Virgil. How can Virgil go back? He's going to go back to hell. The, the, the point I wanted to underscore last week is there's no other way he can do anything else. He's natural reason. He's bound to it. In itself, that reason can't go on to heaven. So he's the very best that reason can give us, and it's crucial to see what's going on here. For Dante to go on, he has to learn to use reason differently. And that line of his in La Vitova, ladies who have the intelligence of love. He's talking about an intelligence that's rooted in <coughs> love. And I tried to stress that as much as I could. The way in which people use that kind of intelligence is very different from people who use an intelligence that's not rooted in love. Self-serving, accusing, condemning, um, wanting to get ahead, make a buck, betray, step over. I mean, wh whatever that reason does. The nature of that reason is its worldliness. Prestige, wealth, career, power. Those are the defining things of of the way we use our mind. The whole effort, effort of purgatory was to, for every soul, was to rid himself of his worldliness. That kind of reason. The, I was thinking in the Mass this morning when we went to Mass. In the opening lines of the Mass this morning, it was, help us to turn from the passing things of the world to the eternal things of heaven. That our whole effort here, this the Mass, is supposed to, learn to detach ourselves from these things. Which means if we do, the way we use our minds will change. We can't use them the same. So it's absolutely crucial in my mind that we see that Virgil is this extraordinary man. He is virtuous. 
He's good. There's, I can't find anything wrong with him as a natural human being. He's Plato, Aristotle, Virgil, they all remember they belong to the level of the virtuous pagan. He's everything good. And yet Dante has to put that beyond if he's to continue in a life of faith to move forward to God. That's why Beatrice comes. And it's interesting again too, Virgil, a man, Beatrice, a woman. I think the significance of that is not small. We don't have time to go into it, but think about that just in itself. So that's one. Um, so the one major aspect of this peripatia is this turn in, in the way the soul is disposed to himself and others. A change has to take place. The way he uses the intellect will have to change. Is he going to drop the intellect? Absolutely not. I'm glad that Mark used that term last week, I think. Bl um, blind faith? That can only come from a world in which people think faith stands by itself. Our faith, Catholic faith, says reason is a foundation for faith. It leads people to it. It's part of it. Um, the mind, God gave us reason. It's one of the powers he gave us. It never stops. To a Protestant mind that looks at the fall as complete, reason's corrupt. Not for Dante, not for a Catholic. It is a, it is a gift from God. We're made in his image. We should use our reason. Beatrice is not going to be unreasonable. She's not going to be less reasoning. There's not a level she's going to go to in which she does not use her reason to help Dante see things. Reason doesn't stop. Its whole end is different. It's infused by a higher by a higher kind of knowing. Okay? So here's the peripatia. It changes. And I just want everybody to see the magnitude of it. For, for somebody to take that step means Virgil's gone. How huge is that? I'm going to speak for myself personally. This is going to be something because for the longest time I had trouble with this because for me Virgil's such a good person. You know, I would think anybody who gets attached to him would say, why? Isn't this cruel and kind? That's the cost of going forward. I can't put it differently. God, it's scary. For me, it's so comfortable to stay with Virgil because I know a lot. You know, he's taught me a lot. I mean, my, my knowing powers of the world, what I know of the world, yet it's those very knowing powers at some point have got to change to go forward for any one of us. So this is huge. This is huge. The second, the second question, major question that I had was Beatrice. It's here when she says, 368, remember now, she, she scathes Dante, she just takes him apart. Speaks to him like he's a little boy and pulling his beard, referring to his beard, which, which is so humiliating to him. 368, I prayed that inspiration come to him through dreams and other means. In vain, I tried to call him back. Think about that. God speaks through dreams. Not By the way, I, I wish we had, we could do a course on dreams and literature. Um, <coughs> dreams, Freud, dreams reveal the dark side of us. Not a question. Not a question. Freud's unconscious is the animal unconscious. Freud had no notion of a spiritual unconscious. None. Absolutely none. But we know that at sleep, when reason relaxes, that is, when our defenses, our habit of self-justification goes to sleep, we stop justifying ourselves or you know, making everything the way we want, God speaks to us. So very often God can speak through dreams, through inspirations, through visions. St. Augustine very often used the word um, 
illuminations. And I'm assuming most of us have moments. I mean, I have them a lot in the shower. What I'm thinking about you know, doing my writing, lights will come. I mean, I'll just suddenly a problem I've been struggling with, in a, you know, with Dante, a light will go on. Where did the, they come from? Where does that light come from? So she tried all me manner of means through dreams and other means. In vain I tried to call him back, so little did he care. To such depths did he sink that finally there was no other way to save his soul except to have him see the damned in hell. And I don't want to go through the rest, but I want to raise this question. Um, why Beatrice? There's two things to keep in mind if we're to understand this term, the full significance of what happens at this moment. One of them is, why Beatrice? Because he's already been purified, right? He's, he's seen it, all the peas are removed, he's apparently purified. If he is, how could Dante, because Dante knows what he's doing, and by the way this is straight from Thomas, this is so orthodox. I suggested, it's the only sense I can make of it, is that in Beatrice, Dante is having a reckoning with some original innocence. And what I mean by that is this, that often when we're younger we have these, what Joyce would call, an, or the church would call an epiphany. The church would call an epiphany. We're, after Christmas, the epiphany, you know, the, the, that moment where God shows himself. Now remember for, for Dante, his experience of an epiphany was related to Beatrice because he saw in her Christ, the Trinity. I, this is not only the Trinity, but the Trinity incarnated, that is Christ. So he, something in her awakened this sense of love for something beyond. And I think that happens to all of us in some way when we're young. Some, very often our first loves take that form, you know, that um, but it may be something else. Dante was married. He married. Um, he didn't marry Beatrice. He married another woman. But he kept his love for Beatrice. She she scathes him here because you know she says you betrayed me. When I died and became more beautiful and more virtuous, you had more reason to love me, and you didn't. God. Um, so I think what Dante is showing us is that every one of us will have a reckoning with some original experience of the holy, of the divine, in the world. A woman, a man, nature, something that makes that person know that it isn't just that thing, that tree, or that river, or that sunset, or that man, or there's something holy present, okay? And we're accountable for it. So <clears throat> that, so I think that's one aspect of the turn. He has to have a reckoning with that for him to go on, okay? When Virgil leaves and he's purified, okay? He's Virgil? Dante's purified. Dante's right. purified. Virgil leaves. Then Beatrice lays into him and he, you can tell he feels shame and whatever else. Right. Wouldn't shame only happen if you still had sin? Because if you are purified of all your sins, there's nothing to be ashamed of. Right. Mark, all I can do is explain it. I, I've had the same question. That's why I tried to put it the way I did. And you're, you're repeating the same concern I have. But my answer to that is, in fact, let me try to put it a little bit differently because the question's good. It's 
I'm not sure that I'm going to satisfy her, but let me try to put it this way. If you go up purgatory, you know that you're dealing with natural sins. Pride, envy, wrath, sloth, avarice, gluttony, lust. Okay? And we know that the answer to every one of those sins is a natural virtue. Humility, generosity, mercy, meekness. You can go up the line. If we've got sins, we, we've got to practice those virtues. Lust um, has to be a chastity. You know, you can go. Mary exemplified every one of those. On the natural world, we know that she couldn't have done it without what the church calls prevenient grace. She was given a grace to do that. Um, we have to struggle with them. I think, so if we're to look at the, I'm struggling here Mark, but the, I think there's a sense to this, there's, or I wouldn't do it, but there's a sense in which Dante's returned to the earthly paradise. But I've suggested this before. For us to return to the earthly paradise once we've sinned is not to go back where Adam did. Because Christ's atonement brought us a supernatural virtue Adam didn't have. Is that clear? Our sins um, wound us badly. And we can overcome them at a natural level. Virgil did. Aristotle did. They were virtuous. They were good men. But Christ calls us to a supernatural end. We will have a glorified body. There will be a different thing. So if you take what I'm saying that Beatrice is an image of something divine that awakened a divine love in Dante, it's clear that love took him beyond everything else in the natural world, including Virgil, whom he loved. I mean, I, I read those lines. Whom he sacrificed his soul for. For my salvation, I gave up my soul. Dante loved poetry that much. So I think what, what's involved in that reckoning is the way in which, in spite of the natural world and all of its loveliness and goodness and what it does to help us, because you know, I ate too much today, I have to stop. I drank too much today, whatever it is. We, we're aware. But with respect to some supernatural love, that's a different order. And I think and this is literally what happened. If you read La, Vit La Vita Nova, you'll see when Dante saw Beatrice, he recognized a beauty in her that could not be limited to temporal <coughs> earthly terms. He realized that there was something divine in the human person. That's, otherwise, we wouldn't have this poem. So he has that reckoning. That's one part of the turn. Okay, For him to go on is to recover what was lost, we've been talking about how important that is for the purgatorio, yeah? To recover what was lost. Something of what was lost was a Christ bearer. Could be the beauty of nature. Could be, I think, remember, if the human person is the highest thing in nature, it'll generally involve a human, I think. I mean, the reckoning will be in those terms. But the more important thing was still yet to come, and it was this. My question. Dante enters paradise. We'll, we, I'm going to get to that We're, tonight. I want to just go through the first seven cantos as quickly as I can. He enters paradise, and we know from his own words and what happens afterwards, he's entering the moon. He's actually entering the moon, the body of the moon, that he's transhumanized. Every one of the souls he meets, even if they meet him at the different levels, um, is in heaven. Every one of them. They've only come to show 
it's the opening cantos. I'm going to get to this in a minute. All the opening cantos are going to show that all through the universe, um, there's this great variety in the planets, in plants, in animals, in trees, in humans. It, it, it's an expression of God's perfection, this great variety, this flood of variety. Um, he's transhumanized. He's not the same. Um, why isn't Christ there? To go back to Mark's question, he was purified with Virgil. He's had this reckoning with Beatrice. Why doesn't he meet Christ? The, the whole end of his journey was to return to him. Christ was the means of atonement. And what I want, what I wanted to suggest last time, I, um, I, I hope I gave it the force that I wanted to, is this: if he's to be reunited with his Savior, the, the man who was responsible for his own redemption, God, um, how can he see him as he is? if he doesn't see that this Christ was originally the Son, the second person of the Trinity, who was the mean, the Word, the means of creation. He will not see him as he is until he learns to see the full extent of the richness of the Logos everywhere in creation. So indirectly, what Dante's doing right now is experiencing the Logos. At every, at every planet, every level, he's going to be discovering this extraordinary richness, this beauty of light. He's going to, every, every, every sphere is going to have its own color, its own pearl, its own gem, its own wonder, its own illumination. They're all different. And they're going to get brighter and brighter and brighter and brighter. So that, um, and this is crucial. For a Protestant, it's for a Protestant, my Lord and Jesus, my Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Right? Um, hi Linda my Lord and Savior Jesus Christ right that's Tom good say hello to him will you we said a brief prayer for him um, tell him I'd like to hit him over the head <laughs> um <laughs> So for Protestants is, remember, they deny the Logos. Nature's corrupt. Nature's corrupt. The effects of the fall were complete. It's ruined. It's, it's dark. It's a, it's, it's, it's a Manichaean view. It's corrupt. Milton, Milton's line, we read it in Paradise Law, all, all's depraved. His line. No free will. Nature's thrown off. It's corrupt. For the Catholic, that's not so. Nature is rich with Christ, because, with God, because God made it all. Can't, it's wounded. Death is there. It's everywhere. Apples are going to die on the tree. Human beings are going to die. Animals are going to die. We're all going to die. But there's this great richness and beauty. It's wounded. So, why isn't Christ there? Because there's no way for Dante to see him as he is until he sees him in his creation everywhere. Can't say that strongly. The Trinity's everywhere, and the Word is everywhere. So that when he finally does see Christ, he's going to see Him in all His glory. That's where Dante's going. So the turn that takes place here, God, I mean, you compare the turn from the Inferno to the Purgatorio. 
compare the Purgatorio to the Paradiso, Dante, Dante's entering a, a world that is, it's just characterized by light, beauty, radiance, color, and all of it is an expression indirectly revealing the second person, the Word. And at the center of it, that Word took on a body. So indirectly, it's expressing, it's revealing the very nature of the Trinity itself. Because what did the Trinity do? Indwell in each other. So the wonder that Dante's going to is extraordinary. God is indwelling in flesh. He is incarnated. How mysterious is that? Well, it is, but if you think about it, its mysteriousness seems more, I don't know to call it, rational. When you think that's the nature of the Trinity, God is indwelling in flesh. So that when Dante enters the paradise, he's going to be seeing principles of the Trinity everywhere. And remember, we talked about it here, just, just for a quick example. The, the Paradiso is going to be divided into three sections. Once again, revealing a Trinitarian aspect to our lives. So when he goes up the first several um, stages, he's going to encounter people who are in heaven, they're with God. They're only coming down to meet him to help him understand the great variety in heaven. Because everybody in heaven, here's the, here's the, here's the blueprint, everybody in heaven is there in perfection, but different degrees or qualities of perfection. This is not equality as the world would want to make it. Okay? They're all perfect. Do not listen to that guy. Um, anyway, they're coming to reveal a, um, a, a, a certain kind of perfection. And what we see here in the early stages are deficiencies in the natural virtues, what you'd expect. What were the four natural virtues? Fortitude, justice, temperance, prudence. And, and think about that. The sun is the most perfect for this. Venus is going to be the most perfect. Planet of love. Mercury of justice. Moon deficient in fortitude. <laughs> so the opening cantos we'll see in just a second. He's going to lay out the principles very clearly for us. We'll see. But the most important thing here is for all of us to see this is not just a sequential journey. You know, Dante's on an adventure. Dante has just entered a world unlike any world we have ever known. And behind it all is this Logos. Christ, the Word, is everywhere. Incarnated. That's what Christ did. And the principle of it, the principle, will be made clear in the opening cantos. So I hope, I hope I've done justice to this. That this is not just my Lord and Savior. I, I hope everybody's here. This is not just a man, God. This is the second person of the Trinity behind everything in creation. He entered it, indwelt in it, radically changed by bringing his nature into our own and called us back. So that when souls return to heaven, they're not now going to the earthly paradise, which is the natural perfection. They are becoming godlike. Remember the word, Dante's word, we'll get to it in a minute, is transhumanized. And the word that early fathers used, theosis. 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 
It means to be gradually transformed into a god. So think, think about the importance of this mystery. Christ took on, indwelt in our nature, took on our nature. When he returned to heaven, he took that nature back in his own person. The last mystery that we're going to encounter before Dante closes the book, he's going to look at the Trinity. I'm going to wait on it so you can see it. But he's got to look at this mystery because you've got God and the Spirit, and you've got the Son now, one with the human nature. So when humans return to paradise, or when they return to God, it won't be in the Edenic condition they once had in the earthly paradise, what we just left. They're taking on a quality divine. It's an actual, Paul's words, sonship, adoption. They're sons of God in some way. So, so the, the, the peripatia that's taking place here is extraordinary. There's nothing, in liter- there's nothing in literature like it. The closest thing that I know to is in the Winter's Tale, and Winter's Tale doesn't even come close when you think about the metaphysical, the spiritual amplitude of what's going on here. Is that clear? Any questions? David, you have- Well, I just... I, I never thought getting out of purgatory that he would be purified. What I thought is that each of those stages, you're getting rid of those behaviors and those mannerisms, right. which put you in purgatory to begin with. Right. So when he got out, where he was ready, eligible to go to heaven, and then Beatrice came, I never thought that he was eligible to see Christ. Mm. Now, I didn't know what was going to happen afterwards, mm. but I never thought he was ready for that. Yeah. that's. A, I'm glad you put it. I, I think that's why that encounter with Beatrice is so important because she she brings something to Dante that Virgil can't. Virgil didn't know Christ. Beatrice did. She could try to live like him. So what she presents to him is a, she is a Christ bearer. She's ready to take him beyond anything Virgil could do. This is extraordinary, if you think about it. Really extraordinary. I have a feeling, I, I hope, geez, it scares me. I can't hear myself saying this because this shocks me. I mean, I just, I am so, I am so blown over by what Dante does. <laughs> this has got to make our life infinitely harder <laughs> if we take it seriously. Because this is a glory far beyond the glory that most of us think about, I think, when we go to Mass, at least for me. I mean, and yet, the graces are extraordinary. I mean, that's another way of putting it. If you see the logos everywhere in creation, and remember, God didn't come to us because we deserved his coming. He came because we didn't deserve it. He's offering a, us a mercy. Then everywhere in creation, we should be aware of this infinite mercy that we're offered. This is, this is, the story is, is about the journey to return to God. This is the, this is the point at which faith connected with reason becomes far more important. That, that, that faith and reason were meant to combine to, to bring us back to this beyond the completeness that Adam had, because now it involved, now it has a divine element it didn't have with Adam. I get breathless when I think about it; it just stuns me. Millie, what? No, I think it's amazing. I mean, the emotion also that you exude in sharing is. <laughs> 
needs to be more contained. No, no, no. Not at all. Just trying to wonder what Dante's wife thought about when she Somebody help me with him, would you please? Still have Still have Marcy, I'm going to put you over there next to him. Mm -hmm. Only hope. I like him, so you're in trouble. <laughs> Just so you know, I love him. I, I mean, I mean that. I hope. I hope there's no confusion about that. I actually mean that truthfully too. Any questions? Gita, come on. You have a question? No? Okay. So we feel like I need to take a break because that's the amaze that's just to me the meaning of it is so amazing. Um okay. The Paradiso. What I'd like to do is try to quickly go through the opening seven cantos and just lay out what Dante's doing and and I think it it'll become more evident that he's he's actually setting out in concrete ways what I've just been describing um, he's setting out as a principle so can you turn to canto one Paradiso don't you have the feeling I mean it's hard for me not to feel I feel like when we read the Inferno, we went through this huge novel. When we read the Purgatorio, we went through this huge novel. There was so much there. We've already covered two great novels, and now we're going into a third. That that each of these is has a wholeness in itself. It's sort of amazing. <coughs> okay. Um, so Dante begins the Paradiso making invocations. Remember we're in an epic world. Mark raised a really interesting question last week about this invocation to the ancient gods, Apollo and others. And um, I hope it's, it's obvious at this point that Dante's Catholic, you know, he, he's not pagan. I think it's his way of, of, of paying tribute honor to the ancient world because that ancient world help give him the richness that he has. <coughs> Think about how empty, how incomplete his world would, would be without it. I, it just saddens me when I think about what's going on in education today that most people want to do away with you know, all this learning. It, it's the foundation in some ways for the Christian belief because so, so much of the wisdom that they came to was already pointing towards Christ. Those of you who have been here now for a couple of years, you know that the Iliad, the Odyssey, and the Aeneid, every one of them has intuitions about Christ. Every every single one of them. They're amazing. They're just amazing. So I don't think he's being blasphemous. I think he's he's paying he's in an epic world. It's an epic convention. He knows that. So do we. When we read this, we're to understand two things. Dante's continuing the epic tradition. He's picking up the Iliad and the Odyssey and the Aeneid exactly the way the in Virgil did when in the Aeneid he picked up the Iliad and the The epic tradition picks up the past and carries it forward, transforming as it goes. That's been a principle. <clears throat> what we learn is the past is never dead. It's not dead for God. There is no past for Him. The past is always being recreated. When, when we go forward in our lives, I hope I'm speaking to everybody here, when we go forward in our lives, I think at some point we realize we're carrying our parents with us whether we want to or not 
hopefully transforming that we carry disorders from the past. We tried to make them better. We know that as we we go forward, our children are carrying some of our disorders. We've left them burdens, and they will do the same. It's, it's, it's the way life moves forward. Remember, God has no past and future, but the epic is always taking the past, carrying it forward, transforming it as it goes. So he invokes Apollo, most, I mean, obviously because he's the god of light. For him to complete this last stage of his voyage, he will need illumination. He will need light. Um, he says on 349, gazing at her, I felt myself becoming what Glaucus had become, tasting the herb that made him the, like the other sea gods there, transhumanized, it cannot be explained, per verba, so let this example serve until God's grace grants the experience. Um, now, Dante's first experience is, remember, they have, like, faster than light, I'm, I, I'm sorry Fred's not here, because he, I, he's a physicist, and I know he loves this stuff. Um, Dante was aware of all the physics in his age. It's, it's written into the poem. He knows that Dante is, is rising with Beatrice faster than the speed of light. <coughs> so in some sense, there's no rules that we know, scientific rules, that will explain this. It can't accommodate because something divine is happening. And we'll see this in a number of ways. Dante's asking this most basic question. They're, they're just entering the heaven of the moon. And he, he enter, actually enters the sphere of the moon itself. He will describe it as a light, like he's in water. Because remember, um, think about the Holy Spirit. Our wall, after Christ, this is really stunning. What, what happened when Christ visited the disciples in the upper room? Did he, go, did he open the door and close it behind him? No, no he, he just appeared. Through. He passed through the door. Mm -hmm. How did he do that? <coughs> when, when he said, put your fingers here. You don't, you don't ask that question. I'm asking it. <laughs> Is everybody following me? Yeah. Give me a pair of <laughs> That was bad. <laughs> Movie night, I thought it was great. Um, I hope everybody's following. He's described. He didn't open the door. Mm -hmm. He's got a body. Okay, let's go back for a moment. Remember what I said. The mode of knowing in Inferno is irony. They don't see. We do. The mode of knowing in Purgatory is wonder. The mode of knowing up the Paradiso will be illumination and wonder constantly, constantly. Dante's transhumanized. We've got to get out of that literal way of looking. And remember, for me, the model is the Trinity. God the Father is not less or greater than... We're in another realm. Physics can't contain it. It's, it's the principle of physics, but physics can't contain it. This notion of the Trinity. Okay. Dante's asking Beatrice. The assumption by most scientists on the Earth at that time when they looked at the moon is that they, they saw different degrees of radiance in the moon, you know, different shades. We see it the same. You can say the man on the moon and and their understanding was that those spots represented degrees of d density and rarity of the moon's surface. So their understanding was completely materialistic, which is the nature of science. It's just the nature of science. Scientists aren't in a spiritual world. They're not in a metaphysical world. And Beatrice explains to him that that's not so. And she uses the mirror analogy, that if you put one mirror close and one mirror far, 
but they'll still show the same radiance of light. Um, if, if the argument were true, Dante would say if there was one spot that was less dense in an eclipse, the light would shine through. But that doesn't happen. So the explanation is not in rarity. This is absolutely crucial what's going on. It's not rarity or density of matter. It's the formal properties of the thing itself. And that's true of everything in the universe. She says, page 395, among all things, however disparate, there reigns an order, and this gives the form that makes the universe resemble God. I, this is too difficult to get into, but let me try to gloss this. Christ is the Word. He received His form from the Father. He was begotten, right? He's begotten. He shows the Father in. He's the means of creation. In creating everything, He created things that would be distinguished on the basis of their form. A leaf is different from a leaf, that's why we can call it a leaf, not an animal. Everything has a different form. But each thing receives a certain quality of God's light according to its form, some more than others. We know that some people are more gifted as violinists, or some people are smarter, or you know, more athletic, or everybody's different. So what Dante's showing is that this in principle of form is everywhere in the universe and in a sense it implies its creator, the form giver, the word, the sun. Okay. There in God's higher creatures see the imprint of eternal excellence, that goal for which the system is created. And in this order all created things according to their bent maintain their place disposed in proper distance from their source. This is what carries fire towards the moon. This is what, this is the moving force in mortal hearts. This is what binds the earth and makes it one. What makes all things in the universe do what they do? This principle that they receive from the Father through His creation, the way or through God the Son and the way that it was created. Not only living creatures devoid, void of reason, prove the impelling strength of instinct's bow animals will move with instinct, but also those with intellect and love. The providence that regulates the whole becomes forever with its radiance, the heaven wherein revolves the swiftest sphere. That's the, pri the prima mobile. So the prima mobile is the first sphere. It's the one that moves fastest. It's closest to God. It imparts its intelligence, its radiance from God to all the other planets. That was the theory of the cosmology at the time. It's true that just as form sometimes may not reflect the artist's true intent, the matter being deaf to the appeal. We all know that when a child is born, that some childs are born more gifted than others, just, just differently. It's because of their formal properties. Because remember, for a thing to exist at all, matter and form have to come together. They're one. Stacy has made this clear before. That's why that theory of body and soul is so important. We're not Platonists. We don't believe the soul is going to go off and leave the body. We're not empiricists who believe um, that the body's going to die and there is no soul. We believe that the soul and body are one. That was the way God created them. That when we die, the soul goes on, keeps its imprint, and eventually there will be a resurrection. The body will be returned, and man will recover that original wholeness except divinized. We saw that in the Transfiguration. We know that man's going to receive this glorious body. Okay. 
Okay. Just as fire can be seen as falling down from a cloud, so too man's primal drive, twisted by false desires, may bring him down. So our natural end is towards God, but very often we sin, and it makes us turn from him. So everything that's in us that was meant to go to him sometimes falls back. We sin. That's why we go to confession. That's why we have the sacraments. Um, 398. We seem to be enveloped in a cloud as brilliant, hard, and polished as a diamond struck by a ray of sunlight. The eternal celestial pearl took us into itself, receiving us as water takes in light and its indivisibility intact. If I was a body on earth, we cannot think in terms of solid form without a solid, as we must hear, since body enters body, and so much more longing burn in us to see that being in whom we can behold the union of God's nature with our own. Dante's entering the moon, body, you know, in our world, two bodies can occupy the same space. Dante's been transhumanized, he's entering the moon itself, and he's experiencing something of that union, because his nature is changing, he's experiencing something of that union that Christ made when he indwelled in a body. How's that for wonder? I hope that's clear. Because stop and think about it. How often does our thinking go that way? And how often do we have an image of it? It doesn't. What Dante's showing us is when we leave our mortal coils, we can't, even though this is our analogy, this is our human nature, so we can, by analogy, you know, we're entering a different sphere. He's transhumanized. He's, he's undergoing a process of theosis. So the whole way he experiences the world right now is going to be different. So Dante's setting out this principle. Christ made clear when he indwelt in us. There's going to be something of that experience in everything that Dante meets as he goes on. Okay. Um, going over on page 405. He meets with Procarda. And Dante's surprised why she's there at the level of the moon. He wonders if she's not separated from heaven. On 3, 406. Brother, the virtue of our heavenly love tempers our will and makes us want no more than what we have. We are glad to be with God. It's Suzanne's comment, poor souls in purgatory. Well, to me, it's an awful. to be glad to be going to God. Some people aren't, won't be. We desire to be higher up, then our desires would not be in accord with his will who assigns us to this sphere. Remember, she's with God. She's not less with him. She is perfect in her love. Okay? But she's showing him a degree of something. It's an illustration of the principle that we just saw. Everything in nature shows this variety according to the way the form is received. Some people are smarter, some people more athletic, some people more sensitive, some people duller. I mean, we all know that. How well do we work with that? Truly, I think about how, you know, in our modern world, because the economy is like a machine, it tends to treat people as if they're indispensable. If it doesn't work out, get rid of them. You know, like people are dispensable. Everybody's different. It doesn't mean they're, they lose any of the dignity that they have from God as a creature. Infants, you know, prenatal, are done away with. Because they don't have the status of coming through a womb or a opening. 
Indeed, the essence of this blessed star state is to dwell here within his holy will so that there is no will but one with his. Everybody there is one with God. Um, <clears throat> the order of our rank from higher to height throughout this realm is pleasing to the realm as to that king who dwells, who wills us to his will. God made this great variety. It's one of the signs of his perfection. Um, what's wrong when somebody says, that's not fair? It's envy again. Yeah, there it is. Why does he get it and I don't? The whole effort, remember when we let in purgatory, was to get away from those, to strip ourselves of that stuff. In his will is our peace. It is the sea in which all things are drawn that it itself creates or which the work of nature makes. Because nature, nature does that too. You know, I mean, we, right? We're getting things from mother and father from... So nature and God working through it um, create these, these blends. I don't know how else to put it. Now, what does this remind you? In his will is our peace. Um, throughout this realm is pleasing to the realm as that the king who wills us to his will. This is the first person in the Paradiso that Dante meets. Who does it match up with? If the king of the universe were only my friend... I wouldn't be here. Mm-hmm. Who is that? Francesca. Do you remember? It's Francesca. The very first, at the, you know, not the virtuous pagan, the very first level of hell, what were um, Francesca's words? When she's describing it, if the king of the universe were friendly, whose fault is it that she's there? God's fault. She's blaming him. Here's the first person he meets on the way of purgatory. This is not an accident. I mean, Dante knows what he's doing. He's showing that in his will is our peace. She wouldn't be there otherwise. If she were in envy, would she be here in heaven with God? Could be. So Dante's showing us, he's illustrating this principle that there's this great variety to nature. We shouldn't be envious. We shouldn't be putting people down. We shouldn't be rising in our prize. You know, all of that, everything we covered. We've been called to love each other, to bring that love to everything we do, and to recognize that there are differences between us. Um, and she describes what happened on 407. I want to quickly, I'm going to move ahead because I want to get something out before we leave. Um, very quickly. Give, give a few minutes, Mark, for you. Um, she describes Constance, the empress, and she says both of them gave vows. They entered Claire's order, 407. A perfect life, great virtue, have enshrined a lady high above, she said, whose rule decides the cloak and veil of some on earth who wish till death to wake and sleep beside that bridegroom who accepts all vows of love, conforming to his pleasure. From the world I fled. She entered the convent. Men took her out. And so did they constant. Now what's the problem? She says, men took her out. Um, then men acquainted less with love than hate took me by force away from that sweet fold, and God alone knows what my life became. The same thing happened to Constance. She was forced out by men, forced to do something she didn't want to do. The difference is this. Picarda, in some sense, gave in. She didn't resist enough. Constance was forced to do something and did it, but kept her will for God intact. And Dante will go on to make a distinction between what he calls an absolute will and a conditional will. 
that when you do something because you're forced to out of necessity, so long as you keep your will intact, then your will is absolute. But both women are here because of the deficiency in fortitude. So stop and think about that. In one sense, Dante's ranking the natural virtues. Fortitude, justice, temperance, prudence. He's showing us um, how important fortitude is to resisting those things in the world that too often we allow to have an influence over us. Okay. Now Beatrice will clear all this up. I'm, she'll say, 409, if then I stood mute, drawn equally by my two doubts, I merit neither blame nor praise the victim of necessity. He says, how, how can you blame anybody? She makes clear that the one thing that God gave us that makes him most like uh, him is our free wills. 410, not the most godlike of the seraphim, nor Moses, Samuel, whichever John you choose, I tell you not marry yourself, has been assigned to any other heaven than that of those shades you have seen here. They're all together. And each one's bliss is equally eternal. But the, the degree of their protection show, per, the perfection shows in what they did with their wills. Um, by the word, the Latin, I want to foretend, not the most godlike, the, the Dante's phrase is the most in-godded. So early on we're getting this notion of indwelling, in-godded. The translation completely loses it. Um, we could spend more time on this, on page 413, he goes into the, the difference of um, between the conditional and the absolute will, but we could spend so much time on all this. I, I want to go ahead. They, they, they rise into the level of Mercury, the level of justice, and there they meet Justinian, who was a Roman emperor, but who also put together that great collection of Roman law um, that was so important for the church. And um, I'll, I'm going to come back to this next week because I want to look at this a little bit more closely. But 4.18, we soared into the second realm and then I saw my lady so caught up in joy as she went into that new heaven's glow in the planet shone with more than its own light. And if the star changed then and seemed to smile, imagine what took place in me, a man whose nature is transmutability. He's undergoing changes with every motion he makes. I saw more than a thousand splendors move towards us, and in each one I heard the cry, Behold one more who will increase our love. There's that picture, remember? I mean, what we're watching is this lights show with lights going off exponentially. One person enters, it's not just one more. There's an indwelling everywhere, it's just this extraordinary glory. As they came near to us, the joy in each soul there was rendered visible in the clear luminance with which it shone. Imagine, reader, if I were to stop right here without describing what next. Now, Justinian will tell Dante his own story, and in Canto Six, he's going to describe the movement of God's justice. Look at the opening lines, 420. Once Constantine reversed the eagle's flight against the course of heaven which it pursued, Behind that warrior who wed Lavinia. Who wed Lavinia? Who wed Lavinia? Aeneas. We're back in the Aeneid, where the whole notion of Roman justice, that is universal justice, was first introduced into the world. 
I mean, after Moses, but in terms of an epic. Um, I want to come back to this, but I, I want to quickly get you to um, um, 4.22. This is his first condemnation of the wars between the Gelfs and the Ghibellines, what they're doing to destroy each other, and in that sense, go against God's justice. It will be a repeated theme throughout the Paradiso. What men on earth are doing to destroy in God's justice. <coughs> Behold what courage consecrated it, the, the God's eagle, the, the image of God's justice work, working in the world. Behold what courage consecrated it, the courage which began with that first hour when Pallas died to give it its first realm. Who is that? Those of you who've been here, this is a quiz. Hmm? Yeah, but who's Pallas? Do you remember? <coughs> Pallas was Evander's son. Those of you who did the Aeneas. Yeah, brutal death. Um, Aeneas, when he gets to Italy, has to find out if this is his home finally. He goes up river to get help from Evander. Evander's an old king. Remember, it's that old ancient wood that... Aeneas is returning home. Yes. Because that was his original home place. He didn't know it. So in going to Rome, from Troy to Rome, he was going home to an ancient place. Remember, Eliot's, in my beginning is my end, in my end is my beginning. He got that from Virgil and Dante. Aeneas is going home and he has to go to Evander. Evander can't join him, but he wants to give him the support of his troops. So he gives him his son, Prince Evander. Yeah. You remember when he goes with Aeneas and he has the war with Turnus, the great enemy? Turnus kills this boy. What's Dante sanctifying, acknowledging here, paying tribute to? That in, because he, that was his native land. When Pallas died, he consecrated that earth. He gave his life so that something could happen. What was going to happen? The founding of Rome. God, I'm just so sorry our kids don't have this today. What would do kids to have this sense? He continues to describe, going over to 425, this is where I wanted to get to. He continues to describe the movement of God's justice as eagle, and then he comes to this point where he says, um, appears dim as paltry deeds, if we were to but see with clear eyes and honest heart as it appears in the third Caesar's hand, that's Tiberius, because the living justice that inspires me granted it. That is, what was happening with Rome was God bringing justice, his universal justice, to the earth. Not the Mosaic law, a law in terms of earthly justice. Now marvel at what I shall add to this later. It sped with Titus to avenge the vengeance taken for the ancient sin. Now hold on to that. Dante, I'm, I'm going to come back to this next week, but Dante's left with this puzzle. He says over on um, 428, not long did Beatrice let me suffer before announcing with a glowing smile that would rejoice a man condemned to burn. She already knows what's in Tate's mind. My intuition, which is never wrong, informs me that you do not understand how a just vengeance can justly be avenged. But I can, now she says, I'll quickly relieve you. The just vengeance was, I could go back. Now marvel what I say, it sped with Titus to avenge the vengeance taken for the ancient sin. Um, Titus destroyed Jerusalem. How can a just vengeance be avenged? 
what what can Justinian possibly mean by that, and what does Beatrice mean? How can um, the Roman Emperor have been just in dis- in um, destroying Jerusalem? Um, so. My intuition, which is never wrong, informs that you do not understand how a just vengeance can justly be avenged. But now I can quickly free your mind. Now go in the middle of 429, because this is where I want to get for tonight. Now listen to my first reasoning. Once joined with its first cause, this nature was, as it has been since first created, pure and good. But by itself alone, by its own act, having abandoned truth in the true life out of God's holy garden, it was chased. That's the fall, yeah? God... Adam and Eve were created good, okay? But by their own sin they fell, yeah? Then if the crucifixion can be judged as punishment of that nature assumed, no penalty could bite with greater justice, just as none could be judged as more unjust considering the person who endured it, with whom that other nature was combined. Thus one event produced different effects. God and the Jews both pleased by this one death for which earth shook and heaven opened wide. <clears throat> if somebody explain this, what's going on here? When Paul was justified, got thrown out of Eden, and the answer to that was justified by the death. Or the destruction of Jerusalem, that the Jews were punished by us. How could that be? Why should they be punished if what happened with the expulsion from the garden was just? Beatrice's answer, man fell by his own free will, he lost the garden. If the crucifixion, that is the Jews put Christ to death, right? They killed him. If the crucifixion can be judged as punishment of the nature assumed, no penalty could bite with greater justice. If you look at the nature assumed, no act in the world would be more just. If you look at the person who assumed that nature, no act could be more unjust. So out of that one act, the crucifixion, came two different effects. Is that clear? Yeah, he, he forgave. Hold on, hold on. We w- this is going back. It's so important. I want to be careful here because I know this can go off. We had this, actually, we did this with Milton when we came. I remember when the God the Father was talking about this act. Here, hold on. Um, would Christ have atoned us if what he did was against? if he didn't answer a broken law. Let me put it different. Was it lawful to condemn Christ? To, no, to crucify him. No. No, that was it was, it was lawful. Was it lawful just to, con- to kill Christ? Who's lawful? If you look at the nature he's assumed, our human nature was fallen. There's no way, there's no way we could have atoned for that sin ourselves. If you look at the nature fallen... We're criminal. We broke a law. If he didn't assume our nature, how could he atone for it? Right, saying the same thing. We're going to see this actually in Canto 70, or later, 
we're going to see this here. It's on page 40, 31, the answer is, it's the, it's the clearest answer of our theology that I've ever read in my life. Is that clear? He, he had to take on our nature if he was going to atone for it. So with respect to the nature assumed, no act was more just. It had to be, or he couldn't have atoned us. He had to fulfill a law. If you look at the person who assumed that nature, was he guilty? No. From With respect to that, no act was more unjust. Right, he was saying the same thing. <laughs> well, no act was more unjust, but the justice that came out of that unjust act is what we needed. Right, and the mercy. And the mercy yeah. that came out of it. Okay. So that's Dante's, that's Dante's way of understanding what happened with the fall and the destruction of Jerusalem. Let me quickly... Um, oh, we got time. Okay. You got time to go back to your review. <laughs> no. The lines are that long? Mark doesn't like long lines. No, I'm just saying this is the longest line. That, it takes the longest to get to confession in any church I've ever been to in my life. So it makes me think about all the people in this church. See, the big chapters are only 10 people. Here, look here. Is everybody okay? Can we move forward from that? Because Dante's going to clear, clear it up in a second. Okay. Turn to page 430. I'm going to go back to this when we start next week, just to review it a little bit. But I, I, I think it'll sink in if it's even if it's a little bit cloudy right now. 4:30, divine goodness, which from itself rejects all envy, sparkles so that it reveals the eternal beauties burning in itself. That which derives directly from His being, then, from then on, is eternal. For His seal, once its stamp, can never be effaced. If man's soul is eternal, and we talked about this, if man's soul is eternal, can suicide take that eternal soul away. No, once God put his stamp on it, it's eternal. Either men are going to go into the next world damned, I mean, if they, let's say if they, but you can't take something eternal away if God created it. That which derives directly from his being from then on is eternal, for his seal, once its stamp, can never be effaced. That which derives directly from his being is wholly free, not subject to the law of secondary things. <clears throat> Was the sun or spirits subject to material realities, to creation? No, except as he entered into it to do something with it, because they live in a divine order. The laws of time and space don't apply there. Um, <clears throat> created thus, it most resembles him, most pleases him, that is this soul, the free will of God, most pleases him. The sacred flame which lights all of creation burns brightest in what is most like himself. What's most like himself? Man. We were created in his image. These are the gifts with which humanity was privileged, and if it fails in one of these, it must fall from the noble state. Sin is the only power that takes away man's freedom in his likeness to true God and makes him shine less brightly in his light. That's why we're given the sacraments, that's why we go to confession, we struggle to keep putting off our sins as much as they plague us. Nor can he win back in his lost dignity unless the void left by that sin be filled by just amends paid for the illicit joy. If Adam fell by his own choice, is Adam capable on his own of atoning for his sin? Yes. No. 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 If your sin is against okay. an infinite God and you're a finite being, is there anything you can do to amend for that? No. Okay? The disproportion is infinite. 
Your nature, when it sinned once and for all in its first root, was exiled from these honors as it was dispossessed of paradise. Nor could mankind recover what was lost, as you will see if you think carefully, except by crossing one of these two fords. Either that God, simply through clemency, should give remission, or that man himself should pay his debt of folly, should atone. Now fix your eyes on the in infinity of the eternal counsel. Listen well, as well as you are able to my words. This one canto explains more about theology than probably a hundred thousand books could ever do. Um, why didn't God, here, so God could choose either to leave man damned, or he could have just forgiven him. Why didn't he leave him damned? Was his sin like the angels? We've already gone through this. No, how is it different? The angels chose to sin. Did Eve choose deliberately to sin? She was tricked. This is a good God. She was tricked. Okay. Milton said this. That's why the angels are damned. They in the first instant, they're gone. That's why I have trouble with what Milton does with Satan. It's gone. Why didn't God just forgive them? Just overlook it. Pass it off. Well, they made that choice. If you did, what would happen? If we did it once, right? I mean, here we are back in the earthy world. You can either damn somebody or enable. You keep passing off what happens if you keep enabling. Keep doing it. Or you can damn them. I mean, you know, we know these. Those are the. I mean, those are the awful things we're all inclined to. I mean, we've got to struggle with that. Now fix your eyes on the infinity of the internal counsel. Listen well as well you are able to my words. Given his limits, man could never make amends. Never in his humility could man, obedient too late, descend as far as once in disobedience he tried to climb. And this is why mankind alone could not make amends to God. I think that's clear, yeah? He's a finite creature. He can't make amends having committed a sin against an infinite God. Does it remain in God... In his own ways, his ways, I mean, in one of them or both, to bring man back to his integrity. But since the deed gratifies more the doer, the more it manifests the innate goodness of the good heart from which it springs, so then the everlasting goodness which has set its imprint on the world was pleased to use all of its means to raise you up once more between the final night and the first day to act so lofty, so magnificent was there. Or shall there be in either way for God who gave himself gave even more so that mankind might raise itself again than if he had simply annulled the debt. And any other means would have been less than justice <coughs> if God's only Son had not humbled himself to make unmortal flesh. Who gave himself gave even more so that mankind might raise itself again. He did this in a way that asked us to cooperate with him in his effort. He took a middle course, didn't leave us down, didn't pass it off. His son came. Only a God could have done it. A human could not have. And only a God who took on our nature because our nature was fallen. So go back to this. How can a just vengeance be justly punished? Because if you look at the nature assumed, nothing was more just. It had to be, or, or the atonement would have been meaningless. He had to answer a law for all of us to make it lawful. And no act was, if you look at the person involved, no act has ever been more unjust. Was Christ guilty? Absolutely not. 
So that's the heart. I mean, I just, just stunning to me. This is the seventh canto of the. And if you think about, it, do the people in hell have any appreciation for this? No. This extraordinary thing happened to answer justice with a mercy. It's the great theme of the Paradiso. I mean, the Divine Comedy. To bring justice and mercy together. How hard that is. God did it and asked us to follow him. How easy is that? I hope everybody knows. I mean, I'm sure all of us know how hard that is. It's much easier to do one of the other, or seem to. Um, I'd like to go back, but I'm going to stop. I'd like to pick up. But just hold on. Let me just stop for a second while, because according to Mark, we're not. Any questions? This is this this canto in Canto Seven. In one sense, is throwing a light on everything that's happened. It makes sense of the inferno why they're there, because they rejected a mercy. It makes sense of the purgatorial in amazing ways, because everybody in purgatory is answering a law, just the way Christ did, with a mercy. The whole effort to return to God is to fulfill a law in love, to become more lawful and loving as we go. That's the direction of the, the story. Yeah? Let me stop. Any any questions? I don't wanna I don't wanna rush past this because Canto Seven is really it's just me. That, that's the center of our whole faith. You you can almost not say more in that's one page. He he almost takes the whole of a tradition of our faith, faith and reason and shows it as a principle. It's just um, just an amazing canto. Any any questions? Any comments or responses? Or I can't find it now. I had a comment on envy. What were your point about envy? Oh, he, I mean, we he, are all... I don't know. On page 430... Tend to be I know, we do. I mean, we're in the world. Divine goodness, which from itself rejects all, and God is free of it, we're asked to... I mean, I don't know how to answer that, Linda, except, you know, the whole, on page 428, that we all know that all of us carry envy, all of us carry, more than envy, I'm going to say all of us carry pride, that the great sin of ours is our pride, that the whole point of purgatory is struggling. Because we're so proud, that's why we sometimes envy others who exactly. appear better. Exactly, exactly, better, you know. exactly, exactly. Human. Yes, but we're also called into a divine life. That's wait. Hold on. I want to just. I want because I want to dwell on what. I I hope everybody's. I'm. I'm just certain all of you know that. Because I don't think any of us. Well, maybe there's some of you here who are saints. I think all of us, or most of us, anyway, I want to be, tend to go through our daily lives aware of our sins. But why are we here if we're not learning? What stuns me about the things we've just done, if you look at the magnitude of what Christ did, and that that's what he's offering us, and we should never forget, even if we're all human, we fail, we're still called. I've said, over, I've said it in my prayers, often in this group, I don't care how bad our sins are. David did far worse than, I think, most of us, adultery, murder. You know, there's no, there's, um, Paul killed people. Yeah. I just, we just cannot forget that we cannot let a sin keep us from God. That's not I mean, that's Dante, but I just that's our faith. 
however bad they are, we, we, our, our struggle is still every day. That's why I keep using, pick ourselves up, pick ourselves up again, 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 again. To be glad, to, to not despair when our pride gets in the way. And we want to make, because that's, that's so easy. I mean, the natural thing, I, I know it for myself, assuming you, you know, assuming we do something stupid, we feel worse than everybody. Remember Debbie, who was here on, on the Friday morning, said, the idea that I'd have to go to heaven and everybody would see my sin, she said, I don't want to go there. <laughs> and and, I, and I, I remind her, in, 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 in purgatory, on the level of proud, they're all there. Who's going to be condemning you on that level? You're all looking at each other and glad you're there. We're too proud here on earth. We don't admit our sins to each other. We try to pretend they're not there. Um, that's our call. It, it's, it's a struggle. We're, we're asked to never despair, no matter what we... That's God gave us that. We have Him who's infinitely greater than we are. Um, anyway, the beauty of this is that our whole theology is there. It, it shows, once again, remember, the whole principle of what's going on in these opening cantos is Dante is showing us the work of the Logos. It's everywhere in creation. It was there at the center of things. It was there at the beginning. It's there present. Behind it all is Christ answering a law and offering his life as a mercy to help us. That's the central point of our theology, our faith. Yeah? Given his limits, man could never make amends. Never, He could never do it. If you looked at the nature, Christ assumed no act was more just. It had to be, or he wouldn't have atoned. What he did would never atone for it. It had to be just. He had to answer a broken law. That's why he went to a cross, to pay a penalty for us. It had to answer a law, or his, or his atonement is futile. It was purposeless. If you look at the nature assumed, nothing was more just. It had to be just for it to have any meaning. If you look at the person who assumed it, nothing was more unjust. That's the great miracle of what Christ did. So the, so the Logos is at the center of everything. See there? <laughs> <laughs> you, you, have, you have that for Marcy now. <laughs> okay. Can we... Sir. About your comment about the poor souls in purgatory. Yeah. Now, I'm going back to my father's time. You know, since Vatican II right. time. If you weren't in heaven, right. we had to pray for you. Right. Because there wasn't, right. you know, you right. didn't get to where yes. you were going. Yes. So I think yeah. that in the old church, it was kind of like they wanted to make sure that heaven is the res end, end result. So we have to pray for those. With it. So it's different than what we're learning about. Well, we're right. still supposed no. to pray for the yeah, No, 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 but I'm saying, he's saying that no, we're yeah. looking at it down, as, as something down, whereas it's something to be happy. Glad for, yes. Well, we no, yes. always yes. happy for those in purgatory. Right. But I'm because just, they're not in hell. But <laughs> I'm just saying, pre-Vatican pre II, let me put it, it was like, yeah. oh my gosh, they're really not here, there can I, yet, here. so actually, let's pray actually, for this them. Is, this is my grandmother's, okay? Way pre-Vatican II, okay? And it, I'm, as I'm opening some things up, it says there's a little prayer called the act of resignation to the divine will. At the bottom of it, it says indulgence of seven years each time.
plenary, plenary on the usual conditions at the hour of death to all who say the above prayer on any day they may choose. So if you pray this for someone, you can help take seven years off. Let me, I want to, I mean, it, it was always there. Yeah. Here, let me, I want to, if I can put this in a broader context, because there's such a value to what you're saying, such a value to what Mark is saying. If you look at the history of the church, culturally, over its history, you're all, you're always, not pre-Vatican, not post-Vatican, you're always going to find aspects of the church who are going to be legalistic and self-righteous in the way they look at this. It's always going to be there. It always has been. It will, it will, it will succeed post-Vatican. There will always be those who are complete. I mean, you're always going to find those extremes. You, you did post pre-Vatican, you did post-Vatican. There are going to be, there are people in the church who can get very legalistic about something. And if you, moreover, if you live in a Protestant America, where it isn't black and white, and the Catholic world is imbibing that, and there's not a question in my mind that it does, your tendency is abomination. Damned. Um, if, you're, if you're Calvinist, any sign, I, I've told you this story, if you, if you give any sign that there's something wrong with you, you're among the damned. Abomination, damned. So that darkness has, it's our world, it's a Protestant world, largely, in, I mean, in our world, Protestant America. There's this tendency to, to be dark, to be um, condemning. There's a law we have to fulfill. We're not, we're not, we're not being good in not fulfilling it, but we're asked to bring a mercy to it. It, it's not a mercy saint, you're damned. It's not for us to say. <clears throat> but there are always, there will always be those extreme. The church is not going to escape that. Even the church has gone through periods where itself is. <clears throat> so it's always going to be there. There are people who are going to understand it one way. There are people who are going to understand it another way. I'm glad, at least now, I'm glad that we're together doing this together to understand, to see. Because I just think seeing it helps us. But you're you're right. It's and, and, and when I think about that, who of those people knew any better? You know, my mom didn't have any of this. Not, she came from Greece. Not a clue. Not a clue. Um, how many people know this stuff? You know, you, you're raised in catechism, and so much, so many people will do with it what they do. They will misconstrue it, mishear it. Some teachers will be bad. Some good. You know, we're here on an adventure. All I can say right now is I'm glad we're here. Okay. My husband says it's 45 minutes minimum, just to let you know. It's like. Yeah, we have to get out of here because they want us out. Did you, anyway. Gita, did you have something? Yeah. Did you have a question? No. Oh, sorry. Thank you. You all have a good rest of Lent. Yeah, yeah.